0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today I will be speaking with Scott Binkin about the selection of vasopressors in patients with septic shock. Dr. Scott T. Binkin is a clinical pharmacist in the medical and Cardiothoracic ICU at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System in Chicago, Illinois, and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy. He received his PharmD degree from the University of Cincinnati, James L. Winkle College of Pharmacy in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thereafter, Dr. Binkin completed residencies in pharmacy practice and critical care at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. Dr. Binkin currently serves as a faculty member for SCCM and ACCP, speaking nationally and internationally on acute cardiac and vasoactive medication topics. So Dr. Binkin, before we get started, did you have any conflicts of interest to share? Uh, No, I have no conflicts of interest in regard to this topic. Well, why don't we go ahead and get started. And before we talk about the selection of vasopressors, it's probably uh, an appropriate time to talk about who gets pressors in general, not just which vasopressors we're going to be selecting. So could you kind of give us some background on, in the continuum of sepsis, who is deserving or who is indicated for a vasoactive medication like a vasopressor?
1: Yeah, so generally speaking, uh, vasopressors are going to be reserved for patients that develop septic shock. Uh, Now, in order to have septic shock, um, there has to be an attempted resuscitation for patients that are suspected or confirmed to have sepsis. Uh, So generally speaking, uh, when we look at patients that are going to be in septic shock, um, by definition, septic shock are patients that are hypotensive or have persistent hypotension despite adequate fluid resuscitation and then therefore requiring vasopressor agents.
0: When you say adequate fluid resuscitation, what kind of dose and what kind of fluid are you talking about?
1: Yeah, so the current surviving sepsis campaign guidelines recommend a 30 milliliter per kilogram bolus and continuous administration of crystalloid IV fluids. Now, the selection of the actual fluid itself within the crystalloid uh, is a topic of much debate and outside of probably what we're going to talk about today. Um, But generally speaking, for each patient, it's recommended that they obtain or or administer that 30 milliliters per kilogram volume challenge first. Uh, After that challenge is given, um, the guidelines then recommend reassessing the patient in terms of multiple either clinical or hemodynamic variables uh, including mean arterial pressure to see whether or not a patient is volume responsive uh, and if they are not and are still hypotensive it's then recommended to to pull the trigger on using vasopressor agents so really like
0: one of the key points from those guidelines is that you can't just start your vasopressor in a patient who has a low blood pressure you really have to kind of fill the tank if you will and add some volume to their vasculature before you initiate pressors. In. is that correct
1: yes absolutely I think we know to this point in the literature and just our understanding of sepsis that uh, you know sepsis is really a dysfunction uh, involving kind of the interaction between the host response and the bacterial producing endotoxins and so uh, we developed this large vasodilation which is really leading to a relative preload deficit which is why the guidelines and uh, sort of our clinical care for patients starts with adequate
0: volume resuscitation first. Okay. And then um, I know that with the new sepsis guidelines, they kind of endorse the sepsis 3 criteria or definition for sepsis and septic shock. Um, are there any other characteristics that someone must have in order to meet the definition for septic shock? Well, according
1: to the most recent definitions, patients, uh, in order to be classified as septic shock, must have that persistent hypotension, as we mentioned. That is defined as a mean arterial pressure that's less than 65. Um, You also, in addition to that, must have a lactate level, uh, serum lactate level that's greater than 2. So this is going to be an indication of both hypotension, which is going to be a surrogate in this setting for perfusion, and then also clinical symptomatology of a deficit in oxygen delivery and subsequent perfusion leading to hyperlactidemia.
0: So then if we kind of step away from that definition a little bit, certainly some patients, and it would probably be a minority of patients, would kind of be in this gray area where they have a low blood pressure, a low mean arterial pressure, but they don't meet the, let's say, serum lactate level of 2 or greater. For those patients, after adequate fluid resuscitation, would you still proceed with vasopressor medications for them?
1: Well, I think the fact that you had mentioned it's a gray area uh, leads to multiple different answers for that specific question. I think uh, there are going to be patients after that initial volume resuscitation that are going to need uh, further volume resuscitation. Uh, And some key variables that we use to help delineate that are things like CVP, stroke volume variation, pulse pressure variation. Uh, And some other uh, just clinical responsiveness in terms of urine outputs, the reduction or reorientation of organ dysfunction, uh, those type of things are going to be giving us information of whether or not a patient is uh, going to benefit from additional fluid. Now, in patients that do not or patients that are profoundly hypotensive and maybe have multiple signs of organ dysfunction and we've not yet seen that rise in serum lactate, those patients you may want to consider the use of vasoactive agents.
0: Okay. I think that most listeners should have a fairly good idea of who's going to get a vasopressor. In terms of what you titrate that vasopressor to, you know, for me, a mean arterial pressure of 65 is definitely on the lower end of what would be comfortable for a patient. So is that what we are targeting with our vasopressors? And if not, what are some other proposed uh, mean arterial pressure targets that we might consider?
1: Yeah, the most recent guidelines do support, again, that target of a mean arterial pressure of 6 and 5. One of the, I guess, interesting caveats sort of surrounding that is that, realistically, the goal is going to be to establish or reestablish a patient's mean arterial pressure similar to what it might have been prior to presenting in the septic shock. One of the examples or one of the studies that sort of supports this theory is a study that was published out of New England Journal of Medicine. It was a French study uh, looking at 700-plus patients with septic shock. And in this particular study, they randomized patients to either a MAP goal of 80 to 85 or 65 to 70. And interestingly, they titrated their vasopressors or vasoactive agents to those mean arterial pressure goals. And what they found was that there was really no difference in clinical outcomes across the board, whether or not a patient was randomized to your low mean arterial pressure goal or to your high mean arterial pressure goal. Um, But interestingly, in patients that have a history of chronic hypertension, um, those patients had less renal complications, uh, as indicated by the need for renal replacement therapy and an increase in their serum creatinine, if they were titrated to a higher goal. The joining concept here is that patients with chronic hypertension likely live at a higher mean arterial pressure, and so the goal uh, for them is potentially to get them back toward a higher mean arterial pressure to what they're used to. Now, um, that's only one study. We don't have a lot of confirmatory data supporting that specific target, and so currently the guidelines do recommend in everyone the goal of 65 for mean arterial pressure, but there is also the caveat of restoring mean arterial pressure toward what the patient Uh, realistically was before presentation.
0: And I think, you know, one concept that that study is getting at is the concept of autoregulation, where the kidneys are uh, used to a certain pressure and they've kind of vasoconstricted or vasodilated a variety of different blood vessels that go to and from the kidney to maintain whatever pressure they like. So they're used to a certain pressure and now they get a much lower pressure. uh, Presumably that could cause some of those renal complications. And for that particular study, and I think you're referring to the sepsis spam study, Um, I would assume then that if we try to achieve a higher mean arterial pressure goal, we probably have to give more vasopressor to achieve that. Was that what they saw in the study?
1: Yeah, that is what they found. In the patients that were randomized to a higher mean arterial pressure goal, um, they had a higher median dose of norepinephrine. Uh, Additionally, they required being on the vasopressor that they were uh, selected longer, uh, even up to a day longer, and interestingly, in sort of a, an area of that's getting a lot of attention now, they developed a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation. Hopefully talk about that a little bit later, but I know atrial fibrillation is a sort of a feared complication in patients with septic shock, and so uh, even though it was a relatively low incidence, uh, just over six and a half percent in that study arm, um, it, it is a complication that we definitely would want to avoid if we can
0: so it seems like uh, even if you were to take that chronic hypertension subgroup, on the basis of the sepsis spam trial, it seems like there's a balance in between adverse cardiovascular events uh, in terms of AFib and being vasopressors balanced against uh, maintaining good perfusion to the kidney, preventing or blunting the progression of acute kidney injury and the need for hemodialysis.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's going to be that risk-benefit analysis, and I think one of the interesting things to note, um, and you know, when we talk more about the different types of agents, you know, the vast majority of patients in this particular study were were on norepinephrine. Uh, so it does beg the question of whether a selection of a different agent, perhaps one that even has less arrhythmogenicity than norepinephrine, um, if that would have changed the outcomes.
0: And I think that's a great segue to talk about is there a preferred vasopressor by the uh, surviving sepsis guidelines? And if there is a preferred one, what kind of data supports that preference?
1: Yeah. So there is a, um, a sort of hierarchy of vasopressors um, in, in terms of their selection. Norepinephrine is going to be the vasopressor sort of of choice for uh, folks with septic shock. It has been actually in all the previous renditions of the guidelines. Now, the reason for this is there is is not largely due to the fact that norepinephrine is superior to uh, all the other agents. It's really just through the generation of literature that's been out there. Norepinephrine has been the most investigated, and subsequently has sort of the most uh, the largest breadth of data to support it. There are some agents that we're definitely going to uh, want to avoid, and dopamine would be one of those specific agents. There have been multiple randomized studies. Uh, the SOAP two a uh, study being one of the largest ones, uh, and additional uh, meta-analyses that sort of have, have confirmed the fact that dopamine in this particular setting appears to be less safe than something like norepinephrine. There's been a higher development of arrhythmias, specifically atrial fibrillation, uh, and so in many cases dopamine is an agent that you would want to avoid in this instance. Uh, whereas norepinephrine is not necessarily superior to that, but perhaps safer.
0: And I know that when the SOAP2 trial came out, you know, it was kind of all comers of shock, which primarily included cardiogenic shock and septic shock. Not to get too off topic, but I do know that in the SOAP2 trial, it really stirred up a lot of controversy because there was this potential mortality Um, associated with getting dopamine over norepinephrine. Do you want to to briefly comment on kind of your opinion on that subgroup and if it's changed your practice for the cardiogenic shock patient?
1: Um, For me, it it absolutely has. The use of dopamine in in the particular subgroup of cardiogenic shock in the SOAP2 trial was associated with a higher 28-day mortality. Because of that, I think there has been sort of this preference to steer away from dopamine, um, f- specifically for cardiogenic shock. Now, in the septic population, we haven't necessarily seen that same uh, increase in mortality. Now, you know, one of the meta-analyses that have looked at specifically dopamine uh, to norepinephrine uh, did find that there was a non-statistical increase in death if patients were randomized or where patients were uh, started on dopamine compared to norepinephrine. Now, interestingly, if you remove one of the trials that uh, contributed to significant heterogeneity in that particular meta-analysis, uh, there it becomes a statistical finding that patients were actually more likely to die if they were randomized to dopamine versus norepinephrine for septic shock. And so in many instances, I think you know, for dopamine uh, in cardiogenic shock, the data seems to support that it's uh, – you know, associated with the higher mortality, and in septic shock, you know there there's a lot of consistency with that. So I do think, unless you can't get another agent to the bedside quickly, uh, dopamine perhaps shouldn't be used for septic shock.
0: So then, is there still a role for dopamine in septic shock, in your opinion, and in the opinion of the the authors of the guidelines?
1: Yeah, so I think there is a kind of a niche for it, Uh, one of the instances would be the fact that dopamine comes in a prefixed room temperature uh, available uh, product. And so because of that, dopamine oftentimes can be stored in uh, drug boxes, crash carts, uh, automated dispensing cabinets. Uh, And so because of that, uh, having dopamine or often times uh, we can get dopamine to the bedside in a quicker fashion than we could some of the additional agents. Now there is some information out there about extended stability with refrigeration and things like that for norepinephrine and epinephrine and so perhaps that that advantage is going away but that would be one specific instance. Additionally you know, if there is any kind of presentation within septic shock of a patient that has relative bradycardia um, though you know technically Tachycardia is one of the physiologic responses uh, in septic shock, which is you know kind of shown through its utilization in the the surge response that you know is no longer being used clinically as much. Um, But we know that um, patients can sometimes present with bradycardia, either absolute or relative bradycardia. In those patients, dopamine is actually still one of the preferred agents. Um, Dopamine is you know sort of a second line agent in symptomatic bradycardia. So if you have a patient that has septic shock with also the presentation of bradycardia, perhaps dopamine would be used for that particular presentation.
0: And I know that, you know, historically, the use of peripheral line vasopressors uh, used to be a hot topic in terms of which vasopressors could be given through a peripheral line versus a central line, Um, at least from the data that I've seen. um, As long as you're ensuring that you have a large-bore peripheral IV and it's given, you know, anticubital or more proximal, you're probably okay for a couple hours with really any of the vasopressors, including norepinephrine. Do you find that that comes up as a topic at your site very often?
1: Uh, I would say it does. And I I think we actually use a very similar principle uh, that, you know, anything more proximal than anticubital or higher, so so to speak. You know, one of the interesting things is that, you know, realistically, you could give any vasopressor in an emergency in any kind of access that you have, uh, intraosseous access included. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind, though, is that the risk of extravasation and necrosis is related, really, to the alpha, alpha-1 alpha properties of the medication. Um, given that, uh, you know, any medication, whether it's phenylephrine, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, anything that has substantial alpha-1 agonistic properties can lead to extravasation and potential tissue necrosis.
0: And I know, again, historically, that at least a year or two ago, that was a huge deal because the kind of antidote that's recommended, which is an alpha-1 antagonist, uh, phyntolamine, was actually in shortage, and we, we didn't have it at our hospital for some time. You know, now we do have it, um, but still, I mean, obviously, prevention is a better uh, treatment than you know, treating it once it actually happens. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we covered uh, atrial fibrillation as a potential adverse effect of our vasopressors, and. It sounds like dopamine is probably more implicated with arrhythmia, specifically AFib. Um, What are some of the other risks that you associate with the vasopressors that are used in septic shock?
1: Well, any vasopressor that causes um, peripheral vasoconstriction uh, carries the risk of leading to malperfusion. Uh, One of the sort of the interesting physiologic uh, differences between each of us is that we have different receptor densities specifically for the alpha-1 receptor in our periphery, in our uh, renal vasculature, our guts, and small bowel vasculature as well. And so because of that, differ- those differences in receptor density, uh, there is different propensity to develop malperfusion type of reactions with using these agents. And those can be anything from digital ischemia to gut ischemia to even myocardial ischemia. And so that would be one of the specific risk factors that we would be looking for. Uh, additionally, um, there are some sort of unique risk factors that have been demonstrated, you know, sort of unique side effect profiles that have been demonstrated with some of the additional agents. Uh, epinephrine carries the risk of hyperglycemia. Uh, through its beta-agonistic properties. Um, additionally, uh, studies have sort of confirmed that beyond just hyperglycemia, because of the extent of it, there's been an increase in insulin utilization, including insulin infusions. Uh, also, there is an, a uh, transient uh, increase in your lactic acid uh, expression with the use of epinephrine. Now, that's been found in A couple studies sort of confirming that over the first 12 to 24 hours of using it, you actually might see an increase in your lactic acid. As a monitoring parameter, we would actually want to see that decrease, and so it can confound your resuscitation a little bit with using epinephrine. Uh, Additionally, you know, patients with systolic heart failure, all these agents, because they're peripherally acting in terms of uh, causing vasoconstriction, could cause some afterload issues. Um, There have been sort of multiple hemodynamic analyses viewing these, and it really only shows itself in patients with systolic heart failure. Uh, The general population that does not have that really doesn't come as a concern with the afterload increasing agents.
0: So what you're saying in that systolic heart failure patient population is that that vasoconstriction, which increases afterload makes it more difficult to have an adequate cardiac output then?
1: Absolutely, yeah. That sort of rapid increase in your afterload potentially could decrease your stroke volume, uh, subsequently decreasing your effective cardiac output, uh, which is going to be a major compensatory way uh, of providing mean arterial pressure support during the septic shock episode.
0: Perfect. Well, you know, we've really focused our attention on norepinephrine and dopamine from a very clinical standpoint. Clearly, you know, these are different chemical entities that probably have different receptor binding profiles and things like that. I know that if I was to open up a pharmacology textbook, I'd probably be met with a a very large table with many pluses and minuses and things like that to describe the receptor activity of each of these vasopressors. Can you kind of condense it down for the listeners into the basic nuts and bolts of the pharmacology of the main pressors that we're using in septic shock?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think I mean, if you think about norepinephrine, our sort of first choice, first line vasopressor, it's 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 a mixed alpha one and beta one vasoconstrictor. Um, so the alpha one properties obviously lead to the vasoconstriction, and beta one is going to increase your chronotropy as well as your inotropy. Um, and so one of the unique aspects, and this is going to hold true with. Uh, multiple different agents is that as you increase through the dosing profile of norepinephrine, you actually start to get more alpha one vasoconstriction. Norepinephrine is considered, you know, sort of a mixed agent at lower doses, and then primarily going to be that true vasopressor as we as we think of it. Um, once you start moving through the dosing range, uh, dopamine. Uh, I think many uh, of the listeners are probably familiar with the dose-dependent effects of dopamine. That at very low doses we have mostly our dopamine uh, receptor agonism at moderate doses, we're really in that beta-1 range, and then at higher doses, we're in that alpha-1 vasoconstrictive property range. Um, One of the interesting things to note about dopamine is that as you move through the different uh, categories of dosing ranges, you really don't lose the subsequent effects of the dosing range that you just move through. Uh, For example, if you're in the alpha-1 vasoconstrictive range, you're still getting... um, extensive beta-1 agonism as well as dopamine agonism. So that's something that's sort of unique about dopamine to keep in mind. Uh, Phenylephrine is going to be a pure alpha-1 vasoconstrictor, does not carry any beta properties, and so uh, will not have any kind of effect on heart rate or cardiac output, uh, at least any kind of direct effect, I should say. And then you have an agent like epinephrine, which is a a real potent alpha and beta agent. Um, It's It is an alpha-1 agonist, a beta-1 agonist, additionally a beta-2 agonist, and because of that, oftentimes at low doses, you see a lot of the inotropic and chronotropic properties because the alpha-1 and the beta-2 and beta-2 agonism will lead to vasodilation. Um, Those properties are, are balancing one another out. Um, Again, similarly to norepinephrine and dopamine, as you move through the dosing profile of epinephrine, it becomes more of a potent alpha vasopressor, that true vasoconstriction. And then lastly, vasopressin is an agent, um, it's a a V1 receptor agonist. V1 in the periphery uh, is coupled to the same stimulatory G protein that the alpha 1 receptor is. And so essentially gives you a very similar intracellular response as you would see with alpha-1. And so vasopressin is going to be primarily a V1 agonist.
0: Great. So it seems like some knowledge of the pharmacology and the receptor profiles is important because sometimes you probably want a little bit more of the beta effects for that patient with, let's say, an impaired left ventricular function. Whereas other times, if you have a very tachycardic patient, maybe it would be better to try to avoid some of those beta effects when possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's, uh, you know, a very good decision point, you know, the ones that you have made, you know, is the patient tachycardic or, you know, how tachycardic are they after fluid resuscitation, Um, and then then that can sort of lead lead to a decision of which um, vasopressor agent you would want to select. Additionally, you know, knowing sort of the history about a patient or even some of the you know, bedside uh, echocardio uh, or ultrasound type of things that we can do now, we can get an idea of systolic function to know whether something that's a pure vasoconstrictor, whether that's going to lead to the complication in that patient as well.
0: So comparing the pharmacology is one thing, kind of comparing the, the fight of dopamine versus norepinephrine. Do we have a lot of other clinical comparative data to help us decide whether one agent is preferred over another agent in terms of an outcome standpoint or an adverse effect
2: standpoint?
1: Well, i say for an outcome standpoint, we really don't have a lot of great data that supports the use of one agent over another. You know, the primary purpose of using vasopressors is to increase mean arterial pressure. And many of the studies have, you know, sort of confirmed and conferred that there's really no differences between the agents in terms of their ability to do that. Um, because of that, we're largely left with looking at the side effect profiles and, you know, any kind of implications in terms of safety and, and selecting the agents. Um, an example of this would be uh, a study called, you know, called the CAT study, and this was a study of a multicenter analysis uh, out of Australia. It was published in Intensive Care Medicine in 2008. Um, This was a randomized, multicenter, blinded comparative study that looked at patients that required vasopressors for shock. Now, again, this is not a specific septic shock study. Um, This was sort of an exploratory study. By far, though, the major presentation of shock within this uh, was septic shock. Um, There was 277 patients that were enrolled, and patients were randomized to either norepinephrine, or epinephrine as their first line vasopressor. Um, what it found in this study is that there was no difference in mortality, uh, there was no difference in the achievement of mean arterial pressure goal, but what was found was some of the side effects that we had mentioned earlier. And in fact there was actually a statistically higher percentage of patients that were discontinued from their vasopressor because of side effects and those side effects were more often seen in patients on epinephrine. Uh, the side effects that led to discontinuation were tachyarrhythmias, uh, both tachycardia as well as the development of arrhythmias, and then additionally, just an increase in serum lactate levels. In this same analysis, they also found uh, that patients were more likely to have uh, an insulin requirement or have a higher insulin requirement in the first 24 hours. So that's sort of you know some, uh, some cluing and some information that we can collect about norepinephrine versus epinephrine. Uh, Additionally, there was a study um, very similar in design called the CATS study, um, which looked specifically at septic shock patients. In this particular analysis, patients were again randomized to either norepinephrine versus epinephrine, um, with the caveat that patients could be started on dobutamine in the norepinephrine arm if it was deemed fit um, by the treating clinician, meaning that they needed cardiac output support further beyond just mean arterial pressure support. Uh, again, in this particular analysis, there was really no difference um, in the study groups between epinephrine and norepinephrine with the addition of dobutamine. Um, they actually found, uh, sort of contrary to the, to the CAT study, there was really no difference in uh, the development of arrhythmias as well. Um, one of the major findings, though, was that, uh, again, a statistical increase in the, the mean serum lactate level over the first 24 hours, and that had the same uh, effect not only just causing transient lactate acidemia, but it also caused a, a decrease in the arterial pH. And so, again, very similar in terms of efficacy outcomes, but had perhaps some signaling in terms of you know increase in lactate levels, increase in insulin requirements, potential increase in tachy- tachycardia with u- the use of epinephrine compared to norepinephrine.
0: On the basis of the CAT and CATS trials, it seems reasonable then that norepinephrine would be a preferred vasopressor over epinephrine given similar clinical outcomes a potential of a better safety profile just based on those two studies given that they weren't septic shock specific studies but as you mentioned they had a lot of septic shock patients in them right
1: right they did and the the second trial actually was specifically in septic shock patients but i will say i think the guidelines do a really nice job of sorting uh, of laying this out and that Um, they really say that norepinephrine is sort of equivalent to that of epinephrine, but it may be safer. And I think that that's sort of why uh, epinephrine sort of falls down to a almost a second or third line agent in the current rendition of the guidelines.
0: And, you you know, we already talked about the SOAP2 trial, which was the dopamine versus norepinephrine. Commonly when students learn about phenylephrine being a kind of pure alpha-1 vasoconstrictor, a very common question that I get as a faculty member is, well, why don't we pick that one? Because it seems like that's kind of the problem in septic shock. Do we have good comparative data of phenylephrine versus norepinephrine?
1: Well, to uh, to that, we actually don't at this point. Um, one of the uh, analyses that have looked at this and had investigated was looking at 32 septic shock patients. And this was an analysis from 2008 in uh, Publishing Critical Care. And what this study was, this essentially was a hemodynamic study. Now, they did look at clinical outcomes, um, which in 32 patients is going to be hard to draw any kind of conclusions. Um, but what they found is that if a patient was randomized to either phenylephrine or norepinephrine, there was no difference in goal map attainment. There is no difference in mortality, ICU length of stay. And then interestingly, and sort of importantly, when we think about hemodynamic outcomes, there actually was no difference in stroke volume index, no difference in oxygen delivery, and some of the sort of the concerns that we have surrounding phenylephrine because of its potent uh, and sole vasoconstriction, um, those things just weren't found in this particular study. There was another analysis in 2010 out of the Indian Journal of Critical Care Medicine um, which looked at patients that had dopamine-resistant shock. So, again, this is a very different population. Um, These patients were on maximum 25 mics per kilo per minute dopamine, and then they were randomized to either phenylephrine or norepinephrine as an add-on to that agent. Uh, What they found uh, in this particular study is that There was a statistical decrease in heart rate if patients were started on phenylephrine, which I think is rather intuitive because there's no beta-agonistic properties with phenylephrine. And interestingly, there was an increase in stroke volume if patients were on phenylephrine. And sort of the theory behind that is that the heart, as the organ itself requiring blood and requiring the delivery of oxygen, with the randomization to phenylephrine actually had a, a higher blood distribution to the heart as an organ, which then subsequently increased the stroke volume. Again, in this study, it was a study of 54 patients, so a very small study. No differences in mortality and no differences in clinical outcomes. So we have some hemodynamic data that suggests that phenylephrine is safe. I think there is always going to be the caveat, though, that if a patient does have a history of systolic heart failure, or if you're suspecting that systolic heart failure is coupled with this septic shock, using something like phenylephrine would be cautioned against.
0: So then, Scott, I know that we briefly mentioned vasopressin has kind of this more unique uh, mechanism of vasoconstriction, but I also know that it's not a titrated medication. I mean, it is a a fixed dose that a patient receives. In terms of vasopressin's role in conjunction with other vasopressors, uh, what can you kind of summarize of the data that we have uh, regarding that topic?
1: Well, I would say that the best way of looking at vasopressin is that its role is evolving. Um, In the 2012 rendition of the guidelines, um, vasopressin wasn't really um, strongly recommended. Uh, It was an ungraded recommendation that it could be added to norepinephrine. Um, It was an ungraded recommendation, again, that it should not be used as a single agent uh, for the treatment of septic shock. Um, Now, since then, we've actually had, you know, the publication of a couple different analyses, the VAST study, the VANISH study being one of them, uh, which really looked at the role of vasopressin as a adjunct agent. Um, what has been consistently found with vasopressin is that it does seem to decrease um, the norepinephrine requirements that patients might have during septic shock. And I think that that's actually a very important finding, uh, especially given the information that's been uh, recently published about sort of the detrimental effects of atrial fibrillation in septic shock. Um, there is some analysis of looking at vasopressin as a first-line agent, even as a sole agent. And what has been found in those you know small retrospective studies is that it, it is safe, and patients do achieve their mean arterial pressure. Um, interesting that you bring up dose titrations. I think that that's also sort of um, perhaps. Um, going to be something in the future that might be changing. Uh, The VANISH study was one of them that have looked at, you know, sort of titrating vasopressin. There have been uh, other studies that have um, been both uh, supportive of that as as well as using it more of like a traditional vasopressor. So I think in the future we might see vasopressin role changing, um, but currently um, it's really solidified itself as a norepinephrine sparing agent.
0: Clearly there's a lot going on, lots of trials that have been published, and also, um, as you mentioned a couple of times, you know, sometimes we just don't have a lot of great data to make a, a fully informed evidence-based medicine decision. Uh, with that in mind, are there any trials that you're looking forward to that you know are coming out? Or if not, is there a trial that you would love to see that could really kind of help solidify, you know, a, a clinical conundrum that commonly comes up in, in the field of vasopressors and septic shock?
1: Well, I think there would be a couple that I honestly would would try to get going and and either be a part of or or design. I think one of them would be looking at patients with liver disease Um, and kind of the same idea of patients that have autoregulatory shifting because of chronic hypertension. I think it'd be very interesting to look at those patients that have liver disease and perhaps shooting for a lower immune arterial pressure in that specific subgroup. Uh, Additionally, I I would love to see uh, a study looking at vasopressin as a true sort of first-line agent and perhaps even being titrated, and not necessarily just as an adjunctive agent to the use of norepinephrine. Uh, currently, we're um, involved in a study uh, at our institution looking at phenylephrine as a first-line vasopressor. Patients are going to be either randomized to that or norepinephrine if they have a history of chronic hypertension shooting for that higher map goal. So I think there's a lot of different ways of slicing it. You know, I think the impact of uh, additional medications that they're on before their septic shock, whether they be home medications or those in the institution, uh, that's another area that I think needs to be explored. And so I think, you know, we're sort of just starting our investigation clinically of all these different agents for
0: septic shock. And then, you know, you mentioned it at least once, the idea that perhaps clinical outcomes may not dramatically be different, but it's more about kind of the side effect profile. Do you think that the door is kind of shut on some of these Uh, trials focusing on a 28-day mortality and maybe it would be better to focus on some of the safety endpoints or do you you still think that that would be a valid primary endpoint for some of these trials that are likely to come out in the future?
1: Well, I personally think that a very valid and sort of really applicable endpoint would really look at the development or progression of organ dysfunction. Um, the vanish study was one of them that have looked at that the sepsis pam study you know looking at the need for renal replacement therapy and perhaps even looking at other signs and developments of of organ dysfunction because these patients you know if they develop septic shock their mortality oftentimes is anywhere between you know 50 to 70 percent looking at depending on what analysis you look at not sure whether the selection of vasopressor agent is going to change that and so i I do think that looking at some of the You know, these, you know, surrogate morbidity uh, and safety parameters would certainly be, you know, probably a a better fit for for trials moving forward. I think that's probably great
0: advice for some of the listeners who are either actively engaged in research or interested in research in the future. You know, you provide a lot of uh, clinical pearls that could probably really start getting them thinking about, you know, what research really needs to happen in the future then. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And for the listeners, thank you for joining us today. This concludes this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you have any topics or specific questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet at your input over at SCCM and use the hashtag VCCR Rounds. That's V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. For the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you.
2: Sean Kane received his doctor of pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois, with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condole Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved